If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, my people? This is Jay from Push Black. And welcome back to another season of Black History Year. We're looking forward to bringing you the thinkers, activists, and scholars doing the work in our push for Black liberation. And for season seven, you can expect that and a whole lot more. We're still bringing you the history, no doubt about that. And we're still looking at the past to contextualize our present conditions. But this time around, we're also spotlighting solutions with a group of amazing trailblazers. This season, we're sitting down with 12 innovators in technology, science, health, and academia who are solving global issues that are transforming the lives of Black people everywhere. Get ready to hear insightful discussions with innovative guests who are challenging the status quo who are creatively thinking beyond how things are in order to actualize how things could be. Today's guest exemplifies all of this. In a world where water scarcity is robbing black folks of life's most basic necessity, this brother invented a device that generates water out of thin air, y'all. The man's name is Moses West. Moses is an Army veteran, engineer, and advocate for social and environmental justice. As the founder of the Moses West Foundation, he's fighting to help neglected communities become self-reliant by offering sustainable atmospheric water technology. But more on that later. Suffice to say, Moses is literally leading our people and the world at large to freedom, one clean sip of water at a time. Access to safe drinking water is a human right that millions are being denied. Fortunately, Moses has solutions that we'll break down in this interview you won't want to miss. But first, I want to put our relationship to water into perspective. So check out today's history story about an African deity called Mami Wata. Anti-blackness continues to police us in sneaky ways, but she's here to drown them out. One of the most powerful deities, many still call upon her to help them cleanse spiritually and wash negative energy out of their lives for good. Mami Wata ruled the tides way before enslavers colonized the sea and is still known throughout Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, and other parts of the Black diaspora. Because Mami Wata's spiritual importance is deeply rooted in ancient matriarchal cultures, the deity is typically portrayed as a woman within art. She's depicted as a beautiful black woman or mermaid, but she's much more than this. Their pantheon of water spirits is actually gender diverse. 
Like many African deities, Mamiwata exists within numerous dualities, good and evil, singular and plural, living and spirit, human and non-human, masculine and feminine, but sometimes even existing outside of these gender binaries. Mamiwata's duality is symbolic of water's multifaceted role within nature and our lives. Historically, water provided our people with food, drink, trade, cleansing, and communication with ancestors. But water also flooded fields and villages, made the slave trade possible, offered passage to enslavers, and served as a grave for many of our ancestors. Water holds immense spiritual powers, which is why it's used for cleansing libation and altars. Even our own bodies need to stay hydrated to function properly. Our mother, water, Mamiwata, reigns in duality. Their blackness, divine. So once again, we have Moses West with us. Moses, welcome to Black History Year. Oh, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, excited to speak with you about the work that you've uh, you've been doing. So, what I'd like to start with is probably the most important question, and that is, you know, what does Black liberation look like to you? Black liberation to me would be it would be <laughs> the day. That uh, I walk into a building or walk into a university or walk into a manufacturing plant and they see me as a man and they don't see the color of my skin. To be completely liberated would be to have one of every nationality walk down the street and not be recognized by the individual and the color of their skin or where they're from, but just as human beings. Now with that, I'm hearing some colorblindness, but I'm also hearing um, an appreciation for what's deeper than the color absolutely the just the acceptance of one human being to another human being without having any preconceived ideas or notions of what comes with that person from uh, when you see an asian person you people have preconceived notions about that but if i was walking into a room with an asian person they would just see two people walking in together and that's it with no preconceived ideas about who we are or how we are as people. Tell me about your work in relation to getting closer towards uh, the vision of liberation that you've shared. Oh, in my work, the uh, liberation that I would like to share with people is just to to have the capability, especially with, uh, with the way the world is changing today and uh, with food shortages looming, water shortages looming, the technology that I have created and innovated, it liberates the individual to go back into time by using technology to live their lives as they did when they got water from a well and grew their own food. That's liberation, not being on someone else's grid or someone else's utility or being uh, strapped down to a grocery store where you have to buy your food. What I advocate and what I'm able to do is produce water and food with solar power. And that liberates people. That's incredible. 
And I can relate to that. So one of Push Black's, um, one of the ways we define Black liberation is around the idea of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And I'm hearing a lot of that in what you're sharing as well, um, as well as the control of our own institutions, um, being able to practice self-determination. And it seems that access to water, the ability to do that for yourselves is uh, intricately tied to all of those elements of becoming uh, a liberated people who don't have to rely on others for our basic, you know, human need. Absolutely. I'll have to share a story with you to, um, to drive this point home. When I was a child and uh, born in Georgia, everyone that lived in the South of Georgia, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, it didn't matter where you live, Florida. When I was born in the 50s, uh, people would have their own well. My grandmother, my grandfather, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, they had their own well. They grew their own food behind their house, and everybody had hogs. The hogs supplied the fat, the bacon, the meat, the oil to cook with. They had all their food. They had everything they needed because they weren't allowed to shop in, in cities and towns. They were segregated from the, the stores where they could get some things. There were very few places where they could do it. So everybody was self-sufficient with what they had. Now with technology, we can go back to that same self-reliance, but using technology to do it. So that that independence that it gives to a community is incredible. Not only do you have the capability to produce your own power, which in the old days, which when I was a kid, was kerosene lanterns. There's maybe one house that had electricity. Now with solar, you have the abundance of electricity. The well is replaced by a water generator. And then all your food that you need to grow is replaced by vertical grow indoor greenhouses. 100% self-sufficient. Let's dig deeper there because there is this history, especially in the South, of us practicing self-sufficiency both out of uh, necessity, as you mentioned, and because we acquired skills that allowed us to do it in a certain way. Um, when you were growing up, were you aware of the power you know, of that, or was it more so a hindsight? Hindsight. As, as a child, you know, we were growing up before we moved to Germany or when we came back to visit as kids, we were more interested in, you know, trying to pick blueberries and and apples off of trees. But then the uh, the thing that I started to miss later on in life was that closeness that these communities had in the South and these small little communities where they were uh, clustered together because everyone depended on each other for something. And so there was this, uh, this unity in the black community that I don't see today. And it was all based around who had the well and who had the skill to grow food and raise hogs. And so these, these things were shared. Whenever we could, could finally move from the country and into cities, uh, basically it, we started to separate when uh, some people who had more, had more could go further away. And then this started to break up the, uh, these uh, close-knit communities in the South. And it just confined, uh, just confined a group of people to a certain area of town. And then it was just with the assistance of the, with the government, of course, and redlining and the construction of the highway system, 
that even compartmentalized it more. And so we got away from growing our own food. We got away from producing these things that we needed. And then when the grocery stores left certain areas, what happened was it, it was replaced with sugar, salt, and alcohol in many areas of the black communities and cities. Become, there's something that's well known. It's called the food desert. The food desert didn't exist in the 1950s, even though you didn't have access to a grocery store. Completely manufactured. Absolutely. Absolutely. And who does that benefit? It, it, it benefits the corporation that sells sugar and salt and alcohol. For sure. For sure. And, 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 and the prison system. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, a lot of folks upon hearing this may be like, why would I want to go back to, you know, using a well? Why can't I just turn on, you know, a faucet to, to get what I what I need? Why would I want to use a modern day version of this if, you know, things are provided for me? I'd like to be a very hopeful person. Yeah. And so uh, I, I get lots of negative information because people uh, write to me from all over the world talking about their water situation. Well, I had a meeting with the state of California uh, this week, and uh, they're looking at implementing the technology. They're going to implement this technology in California. Too much water, too little water. And one thing that the, one of the uh, engineers on the phone said, that 80% of the water in the United States has got some detectable level of a chemical that shouldn't be in your water. Mm. It's called the minimum, minimum safe allowable limit of, of a chemical that can be in water. So basically, the larger our the larger our society gets, the larger our neighborhoods get, our cities get, the more chemical plants, petrochemical plants, the more fertilizers that we use, we contaminate the surface of the earth, and that water that contamination goes into our groundwater. So people say they might not need this technology. The time is uh, it's it's coming when you will need every type of technology to get clean water that you can get your hands on. So if I'm understanding correctly, um, you're saying most of the water, the vast majority, 80% of the water has something in it that's not supposed to be in there. So for folks saying, you know, I have access to water, it's it's water, but it's a little, there's a little something added to that water that they may not, uh, may not appreciate, may not be good for them. Um, how does this connect to the concept of water scarcity? Right now, there's a, there's a small percentage of the water on the planet that's drinkable. And continuously, we, contam we continue to cam contaminate that water. So even if you live in a place where you have an aquifer, where you're drawing fresh water, or you have a river, uh, like that, like the latest train wreck that happened in Palestine, that wreck you know, contaminated all the water in that area. So they might, there might not have been a, a scarcity of water there, but due to our uh, human behavior, it made it scarce by contaminating it. So not only do we have to contend with climate change, we have to contend with contamination, and we have to contend with diverting water to use other for other things such as agriculture to grow food. So water scarcity is just having too many people needing to utilize the water that we do have available, and then the water that we do have available Climate change is changing that amount of water, and human behavior is decreasing the amount of water that we have that is clean and pure for us to drink and utilize. And then connecting this to 
history again as well. From my understanding, groups of people and societies who have access to an abundance of water, they're able to use that for, you mentioned agriculture, then later on, you know, manufacturing, and of course, drinking and safety and, and cleanliness and all that. But, you know, it seems that a key to developing as a civilization is access to uh, water for a multitude of reasons. And those groups of people who did not have access to that ultimately perish or likely became, you know, subject to those who controlled the water supply. So when thinking about the black community and scarcity of water in our communities, right, it seems that that's a, just another limiting factor of us being able to uh, to build, you know, civilization in our own right um, and to contribute in certain ways. It's looking at it on our community level, but on the global scale too, like what does humanity look like if we uh, do not have access to water in a way that continues pushing humanity forward? I have a prime example, <laughs> prime example, Flint, Michigan. I went to Flint, Michigan, and I took a of uh, one of the military systems that one of the systems I built for the military that is produces 5,000 liters of water a day. That's 1,250 gallons of water a day. And we took it to the fourth ward in Flint, Michigan, uh, the corner of Saginaw and Marengo. Latoya Ruby Frazier did a, a beautiful Ted talk on this. She talks about the technology in there and what it did for that neighborhood. So what I saw in that neighborhood was absolute destruction. Um, I still have a few pictures of the kids that were there that were completely devastated by the amount of lead that was in the water. And when I arrived there, I, I never thought I would see something like that in the United States. I've got three years of combat time. I'm retired from the military. So time downrange, I've seen lots of things. But to see in an American city, to see the number of children that were so cognitively impaired by water, this is, this is a city where there's a whole generation of people that are not going to grow uh, up to be functioning adults. And, and now we're talk, they're, they're looking at places like Newark, uh, in Baltimore, in New York, where the lead levels in the water in some places is above the minimum safe allowable limit. But here's, here's a catch to that. When they say minimum safe allowable limit for lead in your water, so the water company says you have a little bit of lead in your water. There is no such thing as minimum safe allowable limit for lead. Zero lead is what you should have in your water. If you have lead in your water, you shouldn't. Children shouldn't be drinking it. You shouldn't be drinking it. I've never seen anything like Flint. I tell you, it it broke me down. What was your experience like um, with your technology uh, in the Flint communities? It was it was it was it was an amazing experience. You, because many people come into a neighborhood like that, and the first thing they want to do is they it, uh, the people are very suspect to anybody who wants to give something away for free. Uh, there, no one in the neighborhood has seen a crane come in there for a long time. They haven't seen a a, a, a fifty three foot track uh, tractor trailer come through uh, with a big container on the back. Crane picks it up, puts it out on the ground. You tell the people what you're doing. You're giving away free water. Everybody was very uh, cautious in the very beginning. But after we, we got the machine out and we started operating and even repaired it after someone vandalized it, 
and we gave away free water, the neighborhood began to accept the machine. There were two gangs in the neighborhood. They stopped warring. They all decided our parents come here and get water. Uh, this, we don't have to pay for the water. And then I got the neighborhood to buy into it where I said, okay, some, you all have to come up and help me do this. You, need, you all need to take ownership of this. And so then everybody in the neighborhood around there started to watch out for the machine. And I knew I had made it the day that I was sitting out there <laughs> in my chair. And uh, some folks came by and said, hey, would you, all, would you watch our kids while we go do some, something else? I was like, sure. Now, that was, that's when I knew I made it. But we saw people get healthy as well. I saw uh, a one woman. Her name was Tina. Uh, she couldn't carry a gallon of water home when we first got there. She she didn't have the energy to carry a gallon because her strength she, she had lost all of her strength. She was she had to drink the the lead tainted water with everything else in it. And after about a month, I saw her walk home carrying like five gallons of water. Wow, wow, that's incredible. That's in, both incredible work and a testament to uh, just the difference that clean water can make in someone's life, even in that short period of time. Your work in Flint, from what I understand, there uh, may have been some kind of funny business going on, to say the least. Whenever someone sees you doing something uh, successful, it's a, I think it's happened all throughout history, but uh, people want to, people sometimes want to to thwart something that's benefiting people that they can't have a part of. So the funny business was we were shut down by a, by a, a temporary restraining order that, that shut it down. But then all that disappeared after a couple of years and the machine was vandalized. But the story behind the vandalization of the machine was that we repaired that machine. We shipped a 500 pound compressor in there and we did work in that field over a week, and we got that machine started up again. So you pushed back. They were trying to push you all out, but you pushed back. Oh, definitely. If you Once you put your sword in the ground in a place where you're going to say you're going to stand and fight to the end, that's what you do. Yeah. You stay and you fight to the end. Yeah. And we did. That's incredible. Okay. So you were in the community, working with the community, became accepted by that community. Um, I'm sure that was powerful both ways. Um, I understand that you also did some work recently in Jackson. Can you tell me about that? Uh, Cammy Kitchens called up one day and uh, he has an assisted care living facility. So um, I, I, I put together a machine that I had one stored away and I, I said, yeah, I'll come down there. I'll show you how the technology works. Then we'll try to raise the funds to build a machine for you. It was amazing to take a machine that pulls water out of the air down to Jackson, Mississippi, produce water at an assisted care living facility, give people classes on how the technology works, but then we had to go back and build more machines solely with donations. If I had the money myself to build them 10 machines, I would build them 10 machines so they would have a supply of water in emergency. So the trip to Jackson was incredible in, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, Jackson was uh, it was an incredible mission by because I got to enlighten people on this technology.
and hopefully the city council there will move forward. You work in Jackson, you work in Flint, both of these um, uh, cities with significant black populations. And, you know, I'm sure they aren't alone in terms of the infrastructure needs and the uh, the resources that are either going in or not going into the cities. Um, curious is how you see your work as it relates to just like the day-to-day, making water available on the day-to-day to those communities and other communities like that across the nation, right? Because, you know, these these were two specific issues where there was a, uh, it was an emergency response type of thing, Um what does it also look like on an ongoing basis for communities to engage with this? Well, this, this has been a stellar year for, um, for my company, my foundation, and, and for myself. I could hear crickets in January. It was, like, it was like I was sitting in the middle of the swamp by myself. But January, February rolled around in March. We got together at the... Uh, at the uh, beloved community awards in Atlanta and Dr. Bernice King asked me, she goes, Moses, she goes, I've been thinking about these food deserts and she mentioned the food deserts in her speech. So when we talked afterwards, I said, you know, I have a solution for that. So I've had it on the back burner for years. I produce water and I produce food. And then with the national Institute of building sciences, now I'm going to sit on, I'm going to sit on their board, one of their boards as well for disaster mitigation and recovery. So what the plan is right now, I just visited a manufacturer because I need a, a online manufacturer to keep up with demand. So what I'm working on now is something that we'll be able to put down in any city to work on solar power, produce water and grow food all in an enclosed environment that you don't need to touch. So we could put that we could put this in Newark. It'll work. In cold weather, it'll work in hot weather. It doesn't need power or water from the city. It produces water and it produces food. We can put this thing in the middle of the desert in Arizona. We could put it in the middle of the desert in New Mexico. We could put it in every any size, any size, any shape, complete and closed. You don't have to touch it. And it's a basically just picture a round greenhouse completely round. The center of it is a water generator. The outside of it is solar panels. And we did this in Puerto Rico. We produced water for 15,000 people on solar. So the elimination of the food desert, that's where I'm, that's what I'm focused on right now. That's the end all to be all. That's incredible. That's incredible because when we think about being a a self-sustaining community and having self-determination, you know, those types of solutions are the type of solutions that I believe will help us get there. Coming from folks like yourself in the community, I think makes it even more powerful. Personally, how did you get involved in this work from the from the beginning? Oh, personally, it was, uh, I lived in, I lived in Australia for a long time. I lived in Australia for 11 years and I would fly between Australia and Hawaii because it's, I was flying on military transports. Even as a retired person, I could do that. And uh, I saw in Australia, we had these droughts. So I looked at cistern systems. But when I was living in Hawaii, there was a, a gentleman that lived next door to me. And he had this small system in his house. 
And I was going to come back to the United States and maybe start a company building, putting cistern systems in homes, but it had to rain to fill the cistern system. And then when I saw the, uh, when I saw a small machine, I decided that, you know, if they, someone can make a machine that small, I can make one a lot bigger. And so being a test pilot in the military and having a mechanical background, what I did was I didn't know the first thing about atmospheric water generators. So I started studying the systems. I found something that was close, and then I started to design my own systems. And I've been designing my own systems ever since. You saw this, you witnessed this, but did you have uh, a strong background in engineering or, or STEM? Oh, yes. Okay. I was a... Uh, but uh, I'm a test pilot in two aircraft. Okay, okay. Mil two two mil military aircraft. Got it. So highly technical background. This was not uh, completely new to you. Okay. <laughs> no, you can you can give me a helicopter all taken apart, and I can put it together and go fly it. <laughs> now, this isn't necessarily a a brand new invention, but uh, it's it's there's an it, was there a twist that you put on or an innovative way that you're approaching this. When I when I first started building the machines, like the the first mission that I went that I did was Puerto Rico. The second I went to Vieques, Puerto Rico, and there we supplied uh, fifteen thousand people with drinking water, and we did it on, with solar power. And FEMA never had to send water to the island of Vieques while we're there after Hurricane Maria. Then the next thing that we that I did, the next mission I went on was to Flint, Michigan. And so when I was moving these these big machines around there, I had problems with them all the time. I, they, the coolant would leak through the evaporators, the part where you made water. So I would there, I was spending thousands of dollars on maintenance and I had to figure out a way to do that. So while I was working uh, in Puerto Rico with that system that I took there, that's when I had time when everyone learned how to work the machine. So I would sit under the machine and this is where the headphones actually came from. Because I started wearing these things because of uh, the, the noise of the generator. But then when the generator was gone, it was on solar power. It was completely quiet. And sitting out there, that's when I, I innovated the technology to the next level where it needed to be. So it could be transportable. Uh, the water would always be safe to drink. And then I commercialized that technology by getting contracts with the military and selling those systems to them. So all the systems that are in the military right now, they can drop them, they can bang them around, and they'll never be toxic to the person when they drink water. So that that solar piece, from what I understand, is a big piece because, uh, if I understand correctly, one of the biggest sort of barriers to uh, the access to this technology is the the energy requirements, or it could be the energy requirements. Is that correct? On some on some systems, but not the ones I manufacture. Uh, Microsoft came out and they I signed an agreement with them to to do a test on my systems, and my systems actually produce water cheaper than you can pull it out of the ground. So if you look if you look at the kilowatts a kilowatts per hour of water production to take it to bring it from the ground, uh, 0 0.1 0 0.12 kilowatts, and I'm I'm under that. Is that because of the solar power or is that just with any machine that you implement like yours is able to uh, draw that small amount of power? Oh, that's because of the, the machine when it's working to produce, like say if you have it plugged in and you you're meter the power consumption and then you see how many gallons you have 
of water, then you can divide out and you can find out what it costs per liter to produce that water. And as long as you're under 0.12 kilowatts, you're, you're good because 0.12, even if you match that, that's how much energy it takes to pull a gallon of water out of the ground. I see. And I produce it cheaper in the atmosphere, 0.08 kilowatts. Now, um, you mentioned you mentioned the atmosphere. So from what I understand, too, there's atmospheric conditions that are a, a factor in, you know, how this technology is able to effectively function. Um, but you also mentioned you could drop it in the, you know, in the desert. Uh, is this really a technology that, you know, wherever it goes, it's going to have the same result or are there certain things that may vary from community to community, depending on where they are? The way that I'm developing it now on this on the on the food desert project, the, to produce to produce water for a community, you take the design that I'm working with Nibs on right now, in designing. All it is is to put it together. This works anywhere in any climate, and that that is what that's what the innovation of the technology. That's what we do. So I've, I'm, I'm continuously innovating. I'm not just building a box that produces water anymore. I'm building a box that produces water, that can produce food, that is done on solar power, that can supply a community. All you have to do is tell me how many people you need, need to drink water, tell me how much, how much food is required, and we can design systems that will fulfill that need. So was where other instances of this technology may be limited by uh, the levels of humidity, that's not a barrier uh, for your technology. Am I understanding that? Absolutely. We, we, we need to innovate around the barriers. When there's, when there's something that gets in our way, and it's a, don't panic. That's just an opportunity to succeed. I love that. Uh, don't panic. Just figure out a way to succeed. I live by that philosophy, but uh, I like the way that you put that, and I think that's valuable for uh, just us as a people in general, right? The challenges that are in front of us um, and have been with us are, are vast, but, you know, it's always like, how, what is the road, the, the way that we can succeed beyond this? You know what I mean? There's this thing in the military when, uh, when things would get really bad and you would, so you would stand there and you have to be cool, but some people would panic and someone would look at that person and say, I don't care what you do, but make a decision, be it right or wrong. Just make a decision. Because once you make that decision, then it's like, OK, if it's the right one, we're good. If not, how can we learn from that and then, you know, come back, uh, keep going? Because if you don't make a decision, you're definitely going to die. So just make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. That's real. In terms of how folks engage with this technology, is this something that, you know, at a certain point, someone may be able to just pick one up off Amazon and plug it right in? Some people are in the market for putting, like the first machine that I saw in someone's home, those small machines, that's not my market. What I do is I build a machine that can supply your entire house with water. That's that's where I am. I'm in the mass production of water. Got it. And 
curious, what was your, um, what influenced your decision to go that route? Because if you have, if you have enough water at your house for yourself and your neighbor runs out of water, what are you, what are you going to do? If I'm only making 10 gallons of water for my house, I don't have enough for my neighbor. And everything that I've learned growing up is you give to others. You're supposed to give until you can't give anymore. And so for me to build a small machine that one person can have, no, I build a machine where the community can have it. Whereas if I have a machine at that house, everyone on my street can drink if the power and the water goes out. Is you have to be able to share with water. And I think that's the type of thinking that will uh, take us very far, right? Because I think all too often we are looking at our own unique situations as individuals, but not as parts of community. And there's a number of reasons for that. But I, I really appreciate how um, you're doing this with the mindset of, you know, we're providing for communities here and there's an intention, some intentionality behind how you're you're doing that. Tell me more about your vision for the future with the, the work that you're doing and the impact that you are working towards. When I started out doing this, I would tell my friends, you know, I just spent the five years scaring myself to death. Hmm. When I started learning about our water tables, where water's at, uh, started understanding more from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of what's happening and how fast it's happening. It's like there's things happening today that I never should have saw happen in, in the way of climate changes. These things that are happening today are happening at an accelerated rate. So my hope for the future is what I want to see happen is have this completely finished out and done I like to do that in my lifetime, uh, build the systems that are, are needed so that people don't have to worry about where they're going to get a drink of water from or where they're going to get food from. Because as it's looking right now, and this is information that's out there and readily available, uh, it's uh, sometimes I don't want to say anything about it because it's just it's 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 absolutely too bleak and I don't want to be the messenger of doom. But. What's going on in California in the San Joaquin Valley? What's going on in the Ukraine in the way of the, the wheat that comes out of there? A significant amount of the world's wheat comes out of the Ukraine. And the Mississippi River, when it gets very low, the wheat that we grow in the Midwest, how does it get down to uh, New Orleans to be processed? It floats down the Mississippi River. But the Mississippi River got so dry, you could walk across it this year. Hmm. The Rhine River got so dry, I mean, it almost stopped ship traffic. Every major river in the world is drying up because the glaciers are, are melting and those are what fed the rivers. Mm. So this two degree change in the uh, two plus degree change in global temperatures, it's going to change the world completely. The ocean currents will stop to uh, the cold water that normally drops down to the bottom of the ocean and flows and causes the, the, the ocean currents which changes the climates in different places, keeps them moderate, keeps some places that would be freezing cold, warm. Those currents are starting to slow down and it's, it's going to have a dire effect on us. So it's gonna, it's gonna hurt us in the way of how much it rains, where it rains, it, all of this is going to change. So we shouldn't panic because this is just a change of, 
of what we've seen in the past. So what we need to do is use technology that is readily available to, to produce food and water to support our global needs as, as these catastrophes start to happen to us, these changes to our planet. So there's, it's not, it's not that we're all, everybody's going to die or anything like that. What's going to happen is we're going to use technology to beat this. I appreciate that vision. Um, I appreciate having you on the job. How can folks be proactive um, in bringing this technology to their communities? Every mission that I do or every machine that I build and everyone who has access to that machine gets uh, takes the knowledge out to other people. So I have this foundation called the Moses West Foundation, and donations to that foundation will help to build these systems that I need. So even if I build one system, that gives everybody access to see how that system works, to understand that system, and learn from it. And from there, it, it'll start to branch out. But I think this year, I think... I see the federal government uh, coming on board more to, to help push this out because there are not many uh, viable solutions out there right now for many communities. You can't, you can't purify the water that's so dirty and then the water they did have is gone. So if I'm understanding correctly, it seems like the first step is to get some kind of government solution or involvement with placing these in communities? That's, not, that's something that possibly would happen because right now uh, I, do, so I do manufacture these machines for the United States military. Okay. So the military has, military has plenty of machines. It's just, but I want the civilians to have the same machines. I don't know if I'm, I'm convinced that the government has an interest in really providing water to black folks like that. Uh, can you convince me otherwise? <laughs> Yeah, it's called these. Uh, we have uh, so many renewable energy grants out there that are available that we need to, to hunt out, seek out and find. And we do it with uh, we do it with volunteers. We do it with uh, uh, people within the company. But uh, and we do it with the National Institute of Building Sciences. The uh, they're out there. And, it, it, and we have a couple of years. We don't know what's going to happen in the next it, it, the next election cycle. So as long as we have the ability right now, and there's some green initiatives for solar power, renewable energy, renewable food sources, then we're, we, we have avenues to do that. Moses West, thank you so much. And, uh, and yeah, I'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Next time I need someone to fix up my, my chopper, I will holler at you. Please do. Okay. I do okay? Oh, killed it. Yeah, yeah. That was Moses West, founder of the Moses West Foundation. To learn more about how you can contribute to the fight for safe drinking water, visit www.MosesWestFoundation.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. We believe 
telling empowering stories on black life and history can build a more liberated black future. Being here with us lets us know you probably feel like that's important too. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, but really everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tara Kalani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, Somalia Rahman, Amber Davis, and Darren Wallace. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Lily Workner and me, Julian Walker. Peace.